This is Saving Brothers with Philip Robertson on the Saving Brothers podcast. Well, good day, everyone. Back again for another podcast here at Saving Brothers. And as always, I love catching up with guests and learning lots about what people are doing around the world in the areas of health, self and wealth and ways that we can add value and educate people across the globe. And today it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the Saving Brothers podcast, Paul Davies. G'day, Paul. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. Thanks. Question for you straight off the bat. How's your day going out of 10? Out of 10? Uh, right now, I would say eight. Pretty good. Awesome. I think it's a great score. And it's a beautiful question, I think, to ask men about. And we did briefly talk about it off air, which was, the opportunity for men to unpack and perhaps even put down their load vicariously for a little while because, as you know, us men, we tend to retreat into the cave and we, we have a bit of a mask on when it comes to, to the questions like that. So for us, asking a brother, hey, brother, how's your day going out of 10, is an opportunity for that man to actually really, one, stop and think about how he's feeling but also give him a safe space, particularly if he says he's a one or a three. It's an opportunity for him to have a safe space to be able to say, well, okay, so what's going on for your brother? Let's talk about it. So, Paul, let the audience across the globe tell us where you're coming in from today. So I'm, uh, I'm from um, Nebraska, so I primarily work out of Norfolk, Nebraska, um, and then I actually kind of work all throughout the area through just different towns, different schools. Um, in mental health particularly. Okay. Paul, how did you land in this space? So really what I want to ask you there is, is what's your backstory? Yeah, so I, um, I always wanted to work in some form of, uh, I mean, you can say like healthcare for a long time um, and was really drawn to counseling and therapy as a field. I just kind of liked the psychological approach more so than, um, than the typical, the typical um health model. So uh, after going to college, I decided that's what I wanted to do, got into the psychotherapy field, um, and I've been practicing mental health for about seven years, um, all in this area. I pretty much landed here and stayed here. So, Fantastic. So I think really it's going to be an important discussion, particularly life at the moment is pretty challenging for a lot of people. There's a lot of things going on in the world pandemic's one of them. We've got an awful situation in Russia and a lot of people are feeling rather anxious, perhaps in their day-to-day lives, their work, what what it all means for them. One question I wanted to, to dive into before we unpack that is I know you talk about attention span and that's that's something I think can be very flittering for a lot of people. There's a little bit all over the place. They're not right. quite engaged. They're really easily distracted. As a brother of mine, in fact, from Texas, his name's John Jackson, JJ, said, how many rabbits can you chase at one time, Phil? And I think that's a ripper because we can get really distracted. So talk to us about attention span. What did you mean by that when you, when you talked about that off air? Yeah, so a- attention is something that I got uh, – like working with ADHD or the attention span was something I kind of got started in as I got into mental health. And um, it became kind of a fascination, especially when I was looking into it and realizing that there aren't really good, number one, working definitions. You know, how do you define attention span? What you're looking at, that doesn't really work because I'm looking at something and mind is somewhere else. 
Um, and then there's, there was a lot of, of things that people had, you know, that were fundamentally misunderstood. So things like multitasking, you know, when you mentioned like how many rabbits can you chase? Sometimes we purposely set things up, right. To be like, well, I'll have a bunch because then look at how productive I'm being. And we don't yeah, realize. Yeah, the spinning plates. You know, how many plates can I spin? Yeah, if I can balance them all. And we don't realize that that each time we add one, we're, you know, we're, we're reducing our productivity. Um, so there was a lot of, a lot of things like that, that I, that I found very interesting. I also felt like it was also something that was very shortcut. So people would say things like, well, you know, this individual just needs to pay more attention or like, why do they get so distracted? And I just, I always thought, you know, like, don't, doesn't everybody though? Like, there's always something that could pull your attention. You know, even if you were told not to pay attention to it, if it's interesting enough, you'll, you know, kind of wait, what? Um, and that was one of the areas that I've just spent a lot more time working with, trying to understand, um, and then trying to work with people to like overcome some of that, whether it's ADHD, um, or even if it's not, you know, diagnosable, just to that point of wanting to have a better productivity or focus or, you know, work drive, whatever it might be. And so what are some of the, the ways that you help people to deal with that? Because I reckon a lot of people would probably not even be aware that they have a fleeting attention span. Right. So the first thing, and, and actually you say that, like one of the things that's super, that's very common is I'll work with kids and, you know, the school yeah. might say something and they'll say like, well, there's some, uh, some difficulties with attention. We're noticing some issues in school. And then when I bring the parents in, it's actually sometimes the parents, as we're going through symptoms or we're going through what might be causing it, the parents will be like, wait, that sounds like me. Yeah. <laughs> like I, that sounds like when I was in school. And so they'll kind of see that, that, uh, they'll kind of be more aware of that history that they might have done similar kinds of things. It might actually still be doing those things. They just learned how to cope on their own, you know, because if you didn't, if it was never addressed and no one ever said it was a, you know, was a separate thing, a lot of people just kind of learn how to handle it, and how to hide it. Um, but there's also a lot of strengths with that. Like a lot of people with attention difficulties can be incredibly creative. Um, they can be incredibly driven. So it, typically that gets a bad rap of being, you know, well, they have a hard time paying attention. But in reality, uh, they have a hard time paying attention to some things. There's other things they could be doing for 12 hours straight and forget they haven't eaten. Yeah, so. yeah, that's interesting you said that, Paul. I'm sorry to jump in, but it made me think about people on the spectrum. I, I, I interviewed one of the guys in Australia who's got autism and ADHD, mm-hmm. and he was saying that, yeah, he can just get so absorbed, and he runs a business actually that teaches people to exercise called Autistic Angels, which is brilliant, and we're going to help him globally take that around the world uh, with what we're doing here at Saving Brothers because that's a really interesting area. So, yeah, have you had much experience, say, with working with people on the spectrum? Because that seems to be a commonality. Yeah, it, and there is, there's a high co- uh, comorbidity. So people with autism spectrum, there's a high correlation with ADHD as well. Um, and so I've, I've had some experience. Um, I, can't, I can't say that I've had like a lot in that particular area. Um, but I have worked with some individuals who um, who were diagnosed with both, um, and we kind of you know go about working with them separately. But there is that there is that overlap for sure. Yeah, it, it, what it made me think is I studied psychology. I didn't uh, graduate, but I did a couple of years at university in psych. And when you were talking about, oh, it was like, well, actually, when I was a, as a, a student, and we're talking about the parent comes along to to, to meet the student, the counselor, and it's like nature versus nurture debate reminded mm-hmm. me of that that yeah well you're, you're really uh, 
you're emulating, repeating what was the, the behaviour of the parent. So that's, I find that really, really, really fascinating, Paul. What are some of the, the methods that you're dealing with? Because particularly right now, there would be a lot of stress in the workplace, a lot of frustration. What are some of the, if you like, the methods or the, the ways you go about helping people deal with this? Uh, like with, with attention disorders in particular? No, just in terms of it, one of the things you've talked about previously is workplace stress and how to deal with the frustrations of being in a workplace. Right. I mean, one of the, I'd say one of the big ones right now is the split between work from home, work from the office. So we've got individuals that have uh, either struggling to go from work from home back to the office when, you know, there were, yeah. there were a lot of things that get easier. And, and I think a lot of people found that they were, it was far more capable to work from home than they even thought. So then being allowed that, it was like, why, you know, so I don't have to get daycare or babysitting or there's so many other things that could be, you know, uh, put at ease. So I think some people it's dealing with the transition. Um, For some people, they liked the less social interaction. Other people didn't like the reduced social interaction. So for some people, it's really kind of figuring out a good balance or what is possible. Some places aren't, you know, aren't leaving it up to the individual They're kind of deciding, you know, you either need to come back or not. So that's uh, right now, like that's been a pretty big one. Um, you know, for one of the things that always stood out to me with the, with the pandemic was that it opened up the door, at least for us here, it opened up the door for online counseling. That was not, it was not something, there was so much resistance to that. And then when that happened, we were, I mean, we had to, there was no way you could meet. So that was helpful <laughs> not to like shed overly positive light on the pandemic, but that was one thing that was good. Uh, and it allowed it allowed some of uh, some of the mental health practitioners to be able to have more access, um, and even allowing people to do some of that from work. You know, they could be at the job site, and and you know, we could do a session kind of like this, and we could do it over the computer. Um, but yeah, I mean, when it the the biggest, I'd say the biggest component with work is usually work uh, like the work life or life work balance that you have, um, finding ways to compartmentalize so that the people aren't bringing home those. Uh, stressors, frustrations, and then projecting them on people at home or taking it out on people at home. Um, I'd say those are some of the most common right now. Yeah, I think the, that whole work-life balance, particularly because of the pandemic, I mean, as I said to you earlier, we're in the, the, we hold the unenviable record in my city, Melbourne, Australia, as having had the longest lockdown, with the most lockdown city. So the whole issue of working from home, we, we had no choice. But you're right, there are some pluses because we're a city of some 6 million people. So having to fight the traffic and spend an hour to an hour and a half commuting, well, that's an hour to an hour and a half. Maybe you could walk your dog, do some exercise, mm-hmm. meditate. Do something else. Relax. Not always be having to get up as early, perhaps, and fight the traffic. So there was a lot of positives, and people started to realise that there were other things in life. I think one of the things that people gave, had the opportunity for was to vicariously step off the treadmill for a bit, start to actually think: Is, is this all there is? Because a lot of people I've found are quite unhappy in the work that they do. But they do it, as they say, because it's a job, it's a paycheck, and what else can I do? So people stepped back and went, hmm, is is this what I really want? And for me, that was a real positive, a challenge for some, but I think there's a lot of positives that could come from it. 
I know one of the strategies I, I heard from another American fellow years ago in a book I read might have actually been Dr. Wayne Dyer, who you come home from your job and you hang your troubles on the tree before you walk in the front door. So you basically separate home life from work life, Yep. which, of course, can be easier said than done. But otherwise, I would imagine is if it's possible and you're working in a particular room within the house, you shut the door and you leave the work, work there and you separate. I mean, if you're working at the kitchen table, maybe not as easy. What, one of the things I think, Paul, that's really important, we did briefly touch on this, was I'd love you to unpack and share what do you think are the common issues, the things that are challenging brothers around the world, or sorry, in your world rather, around Nebraska and local communities. What are the, the, the biggest challenges for men that you're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, so I I wanted to piggyback on something you said for a second, though, too, which is, one, I really like your metaphor of, like, getting off the treadmill. Of, you know, it's so easy for people, speaking of attention, it's so easy to get content and, and even confuse yeah. content with happiness. That, like, well, I don't, I'm not having huge distress, so I must be, this must be fine. You know, back to that, like we talked about before, fine. That's the, you know, the basic. Yeah. Uh, and I I think for a lot of, um, for a lot of men, uh, you know, particularly in this area, one of the things that they, they're still a, a very high value tied to the work that they do, the hours they put in, the money they bring home. And that, that isn't for everyone. I mean, I do think that we're separating from that a bit, but there are still plenty of people who I think really just put the value in. It doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm still productive and valuable. And that's, that's what makes them feel valuable. So they feel stuck. But like you said, sometimes they were able to, by detaching, they could find value in, you know, things like being home with the kids versus always having to be at work, taking care of things they may not have taken care of, including themselves. And, and I think that was part that, that was so powerful for some people. Uh, it may not have happened without some sort of, you know, intervention like that saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. So I, I like that. I like that train of thought a lot. Yeah. So what do you think some of the, the, common challenges that men in your community are, are, are facing at the moment? What are the, the things that they come to talk to you about without, you know, obviously naming names, of course, but are there, are there some commonalities that you're dealing with at the moment and perhaps some strategies and solutions that you can share with us? Yeah. So the, I mean, um, for some of the things that I think of, they're not always what brings people in. So for a lot of men that come in, uh, I mean, it can be a range of things, you know, work, um, stressors at home, relationship problems is probably pretty common. But I would say some of the most common underlying factors that seem to come out when I'm talking to men, probably the most common um, is loneliness. I mean, it's, and, and this is something that I saw prior to the pandemic, even that we, um, and I've seen there have been studies, you know, here in the US and um, that really showed, especially men, I want to say they, they looked at men 40 plus and the the rates of loneliness, the rates of depression just really take off. I mean, um, and, you know, we don't always get the whys from those things, but it, it often feels like for many people, it just becomes so difficult to make new, meaningful connections. Um, you know, I've, the amount of times that I've had people just, just ask, how as an adult male, do you make friends? What, what does that look like? You can't, you know, we can't go out at recess and and find someone that we like to hang out with that you know those days are over um and then there's often pushes for you know like don't create really strong social connections with work um you know with your with your 
workmates, you know, with the um, people you're employed with. And, I, you know, the belief being you want to try to separate. So then people feel very um, isolated. Like, so I have a group of people I see at work, but I, I can't be friends with them because I'm told I'm not supposed to. I've got family and friends that I'm, you know, you know, as close as you want to be with them. Um, but then like, how do you make new connections? How do you find people, especially when kind of like using your, your example before, like that treadmill, when you've got most, you know, 95% of your day is planned out between work, taking care of family responsibilities, to do list, you know, that never ends, it never is empty. Um, and, and that's just definitely the most common, I would say, underlying factor for a lot of men is, is just this feeling of loneliness. And, and most of them will even admit that they won't tell, like, outside of, of therapy, they would not talk to anyone about it because it just feels too shameful. I guess um, just the idea. I think there's a. I think there's a common um, belief of the idea of needing people or not having enough social connections is um, almost kind of like a weakness or some sort of. Uh, it makes people needy, and and a lot of people are very averse to that. That's a. I'm so glad you brought that up, Paul, because it's not something that immediately I would have thought of, but it's actually quite obvious when you think about. Yeah, of course. Because when we're children, we go out and play in the, at recess and at lunch and we, we get the basketball or we, we have the soccer ball or we, we run around or we play chasey and there's a lot of interaction, of course. Or when you, on a Saturday, you might play soccer or, or American football or whatever. The, the girls play different sports and there is that opportunity for social interaction. Absolutely. And even guys like, I mean, I'm, as I, as you know, I said, I'm 54, but in my twenties and thirties, I actually still play sport and I play a club sport at the moment. And, and a lot of the guys in our fifties that play is for exactly that thing. It's an opportunity to be with other men. Mm-hmm. So I think it's spot on, Paul. I'm so glad you've brought that up. I can totally get it that men feel a sense of isolation. And I hope with things like this, this conversation that because what we want to be able to see is men become maybe they join men's groups you know the, we, in Australia we have a thing called the men's shed so men that uh, they can go and make things so if they're good with their hands which I'm not but some <laughs> guys they go out and hang out in the shed and they, they they make chairs or whatever it is that they're making for charities and it's an opportunity for men to have wholesome social interaction but I'm so glad you brought that point up about loneliness. So I guess the question begs then, what is, have you thought at all? And it's not about putting you on the spot. No problem if you haven't got the, the answer of it. Have we, have you considered, well, what are some of the options? What are some of the solutions to that issue of, of loneliness? Because isolation, I think, is a massive one for men, particularly in their 40s. Yes. And, and, um, and I, and I have a little bit, I mean, I, I often will tell people that I wish that there were better answers. Like I wish that there were, um, I mean, even, you know, even to the point of like, uh, I wish that there were things where people could have almost, um, you know, almost, uh, technologically based, you know, like, so, um, putting it in this context always makes people a little bit uneasy at first, but it's almost like dating apps. Like we've like 50 of those. But like, there's not so many things just to connect people. I'm like, why can't I just find other people who have this hobby? I, I, I do this. Who else does this in my area? Um, yeah, right. Like that kind of thing is hard to find. But um, I mean, a lot of it, like kind of like uh, you pointed out with even just the one to 10 scale, like, the first thing is, is being able to change the conversation. So if we have the ability to say, you know, I, you know, I'm 
I want to meet other people. I want to get to know people in my community. I want to, you know, create some new social connections rather than making that something that can't be brought up. Um, and, and, you know, I can't say for certain, but I feel very strongly that people are going to react much better than people assume. Like, uh, I think we have a tendency to be anxious. So we tend to think that, well, if I say that out loud, people will laugh. They will do, you know, they'll be unempathetic. They won't understand. But given the high numbers, I think, you know, if nothing else, there's a good chance that that other person is feeling it too. Um, and that can be a starting point is just to, you know, kind of recognize that not everybody out there has hundreds of social connections and is just constantly overwhelmed with how many people they want to see and spend time with, um, that we all kind of have that a little bit. And that's, you know, that's true of most adults anyway, even in just not just men. But um, the other things that I talk to people about are things, you know, kind of like you mentioned, where you, you can kind of get involved in something you like. So we kind of push for, you know, no, number one, recognize hobbies. So I know a lot of men who don't take the time to even spend time with hobbies, think of hobbies. Um, I've told people before that when we do the intake, when we first meet, one of the questions we ask is just like, what do you like to do for fun? Um, and oddly enough, that's one of the hardest questions that some of my male uh, individuals can answer because they either they don't know or they don't want to say like there's just that worry of like well is that you know is that going to be judged you know what if what if i'm into something that isn't you know that isn't just sports or you know whatever thing uh feels most common um you know so trying to encourage people to find the areas that they like spend time around those you know you like to spend time outdoors find a bait and tackle shop you know see if you can find people with similar interests you know, find those kind of hubs and then try to connect to people, um, you know, trying to get away from the idea of, well, where does everybody meet? Well, we go down to the bar, we go down to the pub, that's where everybody meets up. Like, there's got to be better options than that, though. <laughs> there's got to be something else. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my mind's racing. I'm thinking, gosh, within Saving Brothers, if there was a, I'm, I'm starting to think we could actually create a community notice board of where men can, in effect, create a meetup. And I think it's a shame, though, that men sometimes feel, oh, I, I, if I say that, that that's the thing that I'm into, am I going to be judged? We worry so much, us men, about what others think of us. And often we don't really seek out and speak our truth for worry and fear of how's that going to be perceived by others, mm-hmm. not, not just in our employment situation, but, you know, in our local community. Are there any other particular things that, because I think that's just brilliant, Paul. I'm so glad you brought this issue up about loneliness because, again, as a, a guy in my early, mid-50s, basically, I get that because we go to work. I work from home, but we go to work. My kids are 21 and 19, my son, so uh, and I don't live with them. I'm a divorced man. But regardless, you have a you have a role with people when you're a parent. It's picking up the kids from school or it's taking them to their sports or dropping them for a sleepover. And so some of your functions are particularly, and I think that's one of the, and I didn't mean for it to go this way, but I think that's why there's a lot of pressure in marriages, Paul, where Mm -hmm. the function was we're raising the kids and then all of a sudden you hear a lot of people say, yeah, we just fell out of love. We, We didn't have anything in common anymore. Because all we did was spend our time raising the children and by the time we got to our mid-40s and the kids had finished school or maybe even moved out of home, we didn't really know or necessarily even like each other. Is that, a, is that a, something that you're experiencing in the counselling that you're doing? Because I would have thought in Australia that's a very common thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, I would say that's a, that's a major issue. Like you said, like in families in particular, because, um, one of the, one of the, um, uh, I'm going to call it a paradox. I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, one of the things that I see with people is that they have this thing where, where they'll say things like, um, you know, like we don't have anything in common. We don't know what to do for fun. And we'll kind of start somewhere like, well, okay, what do you like to do for fun? Like, well, I, I don't know. Like, okay, you see the problem here, right? Is that they're not going to be able to come up with an enjoyable activity if you don't even know where to begin. Like, yeah. you're going to have to just start blindly guessing and hoping that it hits. And I, I see that from a lot of people where they want something, but they haven't necessarily taken even the personal time to figure out what kind of things do they like? What do they want to do? They're just kind of hoping that either maybe the other person starts something or that it'll just kind of come to them. And it, it's just, like you said, so easy to fall into that feeling of content what's my next responsibility? And then just responsibility to responsibility to sleep. And we start it over again. And then we don't, you know, there's no time to say, what do I want? Um, it's another thing I'll ask people sometimes, like, when's the last time you just stopped and said, what do I want? And I'm, in general, not just, what do you want to eat? <laughs> like, what do you want in life? Where do you want to be in two years? Where do you see yourself? You know, um, how do you want others to see you? Like, it's just things that sometimes we don't even take the time to consider that because we're just so focused on that, you know, day-to-day grind. I think you're spot on again, Paul. You keep nailing it, brother, and I'm loving this conversation. I think that we don't think, and I, well, we don't think, there you go, but in our 40s <laughs> in particular, we talk about midlife crisis because men one day wake up and they go from high school or college, next minute they're on the career path, the start of the family, and their head's down, they're running so hard, and one day they kind of wake up. A bit like Stephen Covey. Do you remember Stephen Covey who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yes. It's a very, yeah, and unfortunately he's no longer with us. But I remember reading that and I was actually listening to the audio version back in the day when it was uh, on a CD or a cassette, and he talks about the guy, he's running, 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 and he's chopping down the trees, chopping, 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 chopping. And then he gets up to, on the ladder and then he looks around and he goes, oh, wrong jungle. And, and really that's, I think, a metaphor for what's going on is that guys in their 40s, they get to that point and it's like, is this all there is? What was my purpose? I don't really have a purpose. I don't know where I'm going. What's my legacy? And I went through all that myself. I went through depression. I went through a divorce. And for me to create Saving Brothers, I actually attended a a three-day workshop, which was ultimately about pinpointing your purpose. And I think you think that's a really big problem for guys that they just don't really feel what is their place? What are they here for other than to bring in money for the family, raise the children, or at least have enough money to have food on the table and clothe and educate and take the kids to sport, a lot of men just really feel lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I, that makes me think of one of the things that I had, that I had um, kind of written down as like a common issue. It, it, it'll play on that but tangent a bit. One of the things that I see um, a lot, and uh, I like to use a metaphor for this, and it's from sports. So the um, sports psychology, one of the like a broad approach is that there's, there's two ways to compete, and that is to play to win and play to not lose. When you play to win, you play to strengths. You know, you're, you're doing the things you know that you're good at. You're, you're playing your game, whatever that might be. Um, you know, it's, it's very strength based. When you play not to lose, it's a completely different approach. It's very much don't screw up. Don't make mistakes. Hope they screw up. 
um, you know, it, it becomes a lot more focused on luck and a lot less your own personal agency. And something that I see from a lot of men that I talk to is that they often will have a mindset towards relationships, particularly um, romantic relationships, and just in a lot of areas of life where they do a lot of playing not to lose. So they, they approach things from this standpoint of, you know, um, instead of being a good spouse, you know, doing things that a good spouse would do, being helpful, they, they instead have a mindset of, what am I supposed to do? I need them to tell me a step-by-step, I'm supposed to do X, then Y, then Z, and then that will equal their happiness. You know, my, my spouse's happiness, my, my friend's happiness. They want, they want a guide, and then they want to be able to follow that guide. And the part that they often overlook is that there's, if, if that were to happen, the downside is that you lose all spontaneity. You lose a lot of personal agency because it just becomes a recipe. Like, you just go through the motions. You do like you would at work. You do the things you have to do. You know, there's, there's no real way to show creativity. I mean, there, there probably would be, but uh, it becomes very difficult to kind of show any sort of special nature to that because you're just doing what you were told. It's not as much, I did this because I care. I did this because you were on my mind. Um, and I, I've talked to a lot of men about that, like trying to switch the focus from, I need to do what you want me to do so that you can be happy to, I need to do the things that I'm good at, the things that provide value, the things that I believe people like for me um, and, and be a better, you know, I, I can be a good spouse, friend, father, whatever, rather than, you know, trying to follow some playbook that will equal happiness across the board. I think that, yeah, that it, it's like the difference between really going for it and playing it safe. Yes. Yeah, the, and, very much that play it safe. Yeah. And it's not really living life, is it? It's, it's trying to almost like, well, if I do X, uh, then why will occur because I've, as you say, I've followed a recipe. But that's not really living, is it? I mean, it's good to be engaged with your spouse and ask, you know, what are the things that you find joy in our relationship or what do you think would make our relationship more fulfilling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, I think, I'm wrong. sorry, Paul, go for it. I was going to say, I think, I think playing on that strings, like it, uh, I, this could play into a whole other area of, a lot of men have a hard time finding even their own strengths. Like I think there's that fear of being arrogant, but um, so instead it's kind of like, well, what do you like it when I do, which is very specific. So you like it when I, you know, cook dinner. Like, so if I cook dinner, you're happy. Well, it's not, it's not that simple. Instead focusing on more of a strength based general skill, you know, like if, if somebody tells you that they think that you're really funny, they think that you have a really great sense of humor. They think that you're very spontaneous um, that you can, you know, plan something last minute and it can turn out great. If, if you know there's certain specific things, or not specific, more generalized things that you can do, it doesn't have to be so much as if I do, like you said, X, then Y. It can be, I just know that this is an area that I do well with. So I need to, you know, if I want to do something special, do something nice, I focus on that um, instead of the specific task. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it, there's an opportunity where the, the, the spouse could say, I really love it that you ask and you show interest in the things that are important to me. You ask me how my day was, but I feel that you're really engaged. You're, you're attentively listening. And that's something that I really like about what you bring to this relationship. I feel validated. Right. I think a lot of the time us guys, because we talked about earlier about the spinning plate stuff, is that we are so much in our own heads and with our spouses, 
we can be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not really there. Right. We're not really present. And I think women find that quite frustrating because we're, we're thinking about, hang on, we've got to make that payment. Uh, this is happening at work. Uh, I've got to get Johnny to soccer. Uh, oh, my mum called and I've got to get back. To, and, and women often would complain that we're not good at doing more than one thing. Yeah, I, I can see that where there would be that, that kind of, that, you know, the intent is not negative. The intent might have been good. Like I'm, I'm trying to be validating and listening, but I'm also trying to, you know, keep those things that I know that I need to, because if I don't, that might be bad too. The other one that we talk about in, in some of our classes a lot too, um, like in a, uh, we run a men's group, a weekly men's group as well. Um, and one that I talk to a lot of men about is getting out of the habit of fixing. Like we, a lot of men love to fix. So sitting down with their spouse and she's, you know, well, I had this, had this bad day. I talked to a coworker, the coworker was really obnoxious and they were really rude. And, and it's very easy sometimes to be like, well, just don't talk to that coworker done and done. But, <laughs> but it's many times the other person involved didn't ask for help. They weren't saying, what should I do? They didn't ask you, how do I fix this? They just wanted to say, this was really annoying. And what they really wanted back was that sounds really annoying. Like, I'm, you know, if, you know, I'm sorry you had to put up with that or, you know, whatever it might be, but they, they wanted more, like you said, validation, not here's a quick answer and a quick problem solve. Um, cause the thing we forget is that when we do that, it tends to send the message of, please stop complaining to me when that's not what we want to do. We're not trying to do that, but that is the message that gets sent. This is really interesting, Paul, because I think men, when a woman, let's say a lady comes home or, and she wants to put the load down vicariously and like just that perfect example you gave there where she wants to talk about this co-worker we we kind of like we think we've got to fix everything we've got to solve we've got to get the rubik's cube and and away we go but often it's just they want to be able to put the load down they just want to share and that's like with what we're doing with the keep five alive question which is hey brother hash day going out of 10 if a man says oh i'm dealing with a whole bunch of stuff and i'm giving you a score of a one or a three out of ten we shouldn't, as men, have to think, gosh, I've got to come up with a solution. And that's why sometimes men are intimidated to ask that question. We just need to attentively listen and just give them a safe space to share. Right. Half the battle is men just want to know someone actually cares and right. think that it's in. Yeah, because we've had in, in Australia, we've had situations where men were going to take their lives, Paul, and the circuit breaker in effect was when somebody actually asked that question. And what happened was on reflection, asking the fellow that was going to take his life was because you asked. So you actually showed you cared. And right. I think that's such an important thing. I think a lot of people do feel, and it goes back to what you said earlier, Paul, about loneliness. It is a really big issue. And particularly with the pandemic, it, may, it exacerbated it, compounded it because we weren't, in a work environment. We were working away from home. So that only probably compounded the issues for me. So I'm really, really thankful that you brought that up today. I'm, I'm curious with your men's group. That's fantastic. You're doing that. You said you're meeting weekly. Tell us a little more about that. Well, so the men's group that we run is just kind of a, a <clears throat> it's actually through, um, uh, we run it through a probation office. So they're, they're, uh, men who are kind of trying to, you know, uh, better their lives or, or change some habits. And, um, uh, the idea has been thrown around before being able to try to get more of those groups more, uh, like community based just to be able to have more 
Um, I've talked to a few people. Uh, I just recently was talking to somebody from Colorado who um, does a lot of men's groups, and, and it sounds like they're they're very popular. And, I, and I'm not surprised. I mean, I think groups in general are popular. People really, they just like, yeah, that, that loneliness, they want to belong to something. You know, they want to yes. find somewhere they can go, talk, reach out to, and they know they're going to get a, a genuine response. They know they're going to get um, people who care, people who want to be there for them. And, and so having a group like that, some of the other groups we've run that weren't even necessarily like, that weren't, um, men's group we've had people even after those groups come back and say like can we keep coming even though we're finished or we've com- you know, completed and we said like absolutely like you can definitely come back they just want to have that continued sense of uh you know belonging i think that's absolutely spot on when we we started a private facebook group in saving brothers and anybody's free to, to join there's no cost it's like it was just an opportunity for for men to feel part of something to feel engaged and you use the word a sense of belonging. You're right. We all want to feel we're part of something, some form of a community. And uh, I think, gee whiz, that's absolutely spot on. Now, one of the issues, and I certainly think that I've dealt with this at different times and, and still do because I work a lot of hours building Saving Brothers. I run a property investment company here in Australia. Burnout. Burnout, I think, is a common thing. How, how do you think, Paul, people can identify whether they are dealing or suffering from burnout. Yeah, I mean, uh, burnout, and I, I was trying to, I just heard somebody give a really great definition with that. They said that it was, it was kind of along the lines of, um, you know, something we were talking about before. If you can recognize that some of what you're doing has lost your, uh, your curiosity. Like sometimes when you're really passionate, you have a curiosity, you have this excitement. Um, and after, a, you know, long hours, long time, it can very easily get back to that feeling of a treadmill of kind of like, I've, I've been doing this a long time. It's not as exciting anymore, but it's mundane. yeah. And, and you don't slow down. You're like, but I have to keep this pace. Um, and you're pushing yourself and kind of ignoring all of the internal signs. And that's usually a big one is getting people to kind of notice, you know, be able to regulate where you're at in almost nothing in your life. Are you going to be able to start here and then stay here the whole time? without an occasional drop and then maybe jump but things fluctuate and that's okay um take a step back if you need it you know um like there's been a lot of research lately showing you know people people perform better when they do things like take more active vacations more get away from the stuff and yeah and i love that that's coming out because it's pushing us in the opposite direction of that just surround yourself with a 24 7 mentality because that i mean that is just the recipe for burnout we yeah are there are there common symptoms of burnout like i would imagine being agitated would be one i'd be wondering whether where sleep fits into this because at saving brothers one of our biggest areas that we're focused on is the value and importance of sleep yes yeah huge sleep is you know when you're talking about the it makes me think back to the plates thing that um sleep becomes almost like a currency that i noticed for some people they kind of have this like well i want to get more done or i want to do all right all right um if you've heard of that was it's uh revenge sleep revenge procrastination sleep something like that uh okay. it's the idea that at the end of the day you didn't get any time for your enjoyment so instead of going to bed like you know you should you'll spend an hour doing whatever you wanted to do because you didn't get that time and then you're you know you're trading an hour of sleep for an hour of hobby and in theory you're like well see it's self care it's, it's i'm using my hobby but you're that that sacrifice that sacrificed hour of sleep is much more detrimental um, than people think 
you know, the, uh, I, I have people frequently who will say things like they'll get the amount of sleep that they get is way below the normal, you know, adults is seven or eight, depending on, you know, some people go as low as six, but, um, and they can still function really well. And, and it's just this idea of like, but I'm, but I'm so productive. Well, that's the hard part is that you think you are, you know, we, we tend to think, well, I'm, I'm putting all this effort in, but it may not be as productive as you think. One of the statistics that always got me, I, I actually studied sleep for a while in undergraduate and sleep deprivation. Um, and one of the, the figures that had stood out to me was that for many people, 24 hours of being awake um, puts you at a worse cognitive level and reaction time than the legal limit of alcohol. So if you're awake for 24 hours, you are, you're driving under an influence more or less if you were to be behind the wheel. You're, you're actually worse. Your reaction times are very slow. Um, it's really hard to process information. Um, and then if you go anywhere beyond that, I mean, there's a whole bunch of weird stuff that can start to happen that can make it complicated. But um, yeah, sleep is huge. And I see so many people so willing to sacrifice sleep to get these little, what feels like small advantages. And I, and I think they just don't recognize the, the cost that's coming with it. Absolutely. In fact, we've got a lady that's working with Saving Brothers, Paul, uh, and I nicknamed her. Her name's Catherine, Catherine Nixon. I nicknamed her the Sleep Whisperer. So she's just written for us an 11,000-word ebook on sleep and sleep hacks. So sleep would be one of the absolute pivotal key pillars at Saving Brothers and it'll be probably one of the biggest focuses around because a lot of agitation, a lot of issues, productivity or lack of productivity as you would well know, particularly from your undergraduate studies, come as, as a result of a lack of sleep. And I think men, and I've, I've fallen into this category myself in the past where it was a badge a badge of honour, in effect, mm-hmm. Paul, of saying, oh, I only need four hours sleep. You know, I can I can function just fine. You know? And it was almost like we were bragging about so, that we didn't need much sleep. But I've certainly changed my habits. I mean, I have obstructive sleep apnea, so I sleep with a CPAP machine to keep my airways open. And I've noticed the difference when I don't get much sleep to when I get good sleep. It makes such a difference in my output, my clarity, and just how I, my general wellness. And of course, what the other things are of cardiac disease, Alzheimer's, a number of things are related to poor sleep, as I'm sure you would know. Sleep's the time when we wash the toxins out of our brain. So it's so important, but unfortunately still misunderstood. I'm going to give you a big A plus, by the way, Paul, because I love what you said. Sleep is a currency. Wow, that is so cool, brother. I freaking love that. <laughs> no, that is. I'm going to go back to Catherine and say, oh, you've got to listen to what Paul said. This is way cool because that is so true. And some people's currency is so low. Right. Yeah, they don't value it. They, yeah, they don't get it. Yeah, it's it's seen as a burden. Like I don't, and you see that in kids a lot, right? Like you, you know, when kids are, I don't want to go to sleep. I don't want to. You know, it's just it it is really hard to even notice um, the benefits. One of the other ones that comes to mind is just learning in general. So, um, and it, honestly, you can. There's ways of even noticing it yourself. If you're trying to memorize anything, the amount of progress that you can make is is. Uh, reflected in in sleep like you can you know trying to memorize something you can make progress by just repetition but something some people will notice is that over time like the biggest difference is day to day and you can kind of track that to sleep like while you were sleeping you made better progress your brain goes back it rewires and it, it tries to strengthen those connections between what was you know most used or what what was recently used 
Um, you know, and, and meanwhile, you're kind of weeding out some of the old, you know, the uh, old things, old memories, the things that are, are never being utilized. You're know, never really accessing that kind of information to really need that around anymore. Yeah, it's, it's huge. I remember my son as a young boy, and he's now 21, but he was suffering a lot from seizures. So he had a lot of epileptic seizures. And his neurologist, he was very, very fortunate to be cared by the head of neurology at what we call the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. But he was saying that sleep is so important that that's the time when your brain is organising and doing all the filing from the activities of the day before. So when that sleep's interrupted, that's actually not really very, very, very helpful. Right. To finish up, Paul, what I would love you to do, is there anything as a final parting uh, word that I'd like to let you have in terms of what you'd like to share with brothers across the globe in terms of the things that you're doing? The floor's yours, my friend. Um, there's a couple that I, I thought I might go through just, and, and I'd be curious to kind of get your your sure. thought on them too. So there was, a, there was a couple other things that I had thought of that are a little bit more specific that I see from men when I work with them individually that come out, but it just seems like it... Uh, like it, it plays a big role um, or bigger than sometimes than people realize. So um, one of them is that for a lot of men, I find that there's a huge um, push to justify feelings and requests. So when they need something from someone, it, it cannot just be stated that they want this, that they need this. It, it's like they actually need to find a way um, to not just justify it, but almost make it seem like it's the only way of getting even. Like, so as an example, if, if somebody wants something like, you know, I'm going to go spend some money, or I'm going to go buy this thing. Um, they might tell their spouse, like, well, remember last week when you did this, I let you do this thing. Or remember how I did all those things for you yesterday? Um, and I remember listening to a, a psychotherapist talk about how when we do things like that, what we're doing is we're taking consent away from people because you're you're doing something for someone and you know if it was a contract they're looking at it going great you you're going to take care of some responsibilities and I don't have to this time that's fantastic and then the next day we come back and fill in the next line that says by the way you now owe me this and then it creates a lot of damaging interactions with people because it starts to become very difficult to trust that anything that we're doing isn't going to have some sort of back end to it later or there's going to be some sort of justification nothing can ever be just on its own um, and a lot of times when I'm working with men on that, there's this, there's a, a lot of those circumstances don't even need that justification. Like they, they would have been just fine to just ask, to just say, I want to do this. Uh, this is something I'd like. Uh, is this something that could happen more often? And, and the rest of it could just be left. But they feel so uncomfortable with that or naked with that that they don't, you know, I don't like it. So then they end up throwing that justification in there. Um, and if you've ever heard uh, something that I, I liked when I was, starting in this field was transactional analysis. Um, and that's kind of like the, the it was the study of, of uh, interactions between people. Um, and that kind of thinking leads to a transactional analysis approach. And what I mean by that is that we start to do a lot of games. So we start to do a lot of this um, tit for tat, uh, scorekeeping, you know, like, well, yeah, well, I did this, well, you did that. And, yeah, you are me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This, you know, it takes that agency away. It's not, I'm asking, but really I'm telling you that you're supposed to. And that's, that's not a good, you know, it's, it's not a healthy long-term, especially if that's the, if that's the go-to every single time is that I can't just ask, I have to, 
I have to justify it and bring in guilt and shame and try to throw that at someone until they say yes. Yeah, there's not a whole lot lot to be gained there. Um, Yeah, it reminds me of another one that I certainly went up from when I was married, social proof. Oh, but he's, but, uh, oh, her husband does this. Yes. Well, he doesn't do that. Or, you know, but you respect him, don't you? Well, he's not doing that. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. And it, and that one, those ones always get me too, because there's that, when people get into that mindset of like, well, look what they do. Um, one of the first things I ask people is like, when you describe your relationship to people, can you honestly tell me you're 100% accurate? Or do you embellish a little bit here and there? And, and do you exaggerate a little bit? Like, maybe not a lot. Like, I'm not saying that people aren't there lying and stuff like that. But you will probably make things out to be better. Oh, we do that all the time. Yeah, you do it a couple times a year. But um, it's very easy for there to be miscommunication that it seems like, you know, grass is greener mentality. But that doesn't mean that it's that it's perfectly like that. Sometimes people, you know, it's kind of like the Facebook or the social media effect. You're going to yeah. see the best. You're going to see what people want you to see. You're not going to see the stuff. It, it's like what they say, oh, hang on, but we don't know what really goes on behind the closed doors. Exactly. That's the mask. That's the, it's very much a metaphor for men, which is they present an outward view of the world that, hey, I thought that guy was so together. And next minute I'm hearing he's depressed because he always acts so upbeat. And that's for us why we ask that question, hey, brother, how's your day going out of 10? It's, yeah, it's really to hopefully bring out people's truth. And that's why number one on the Key Five Alive call is how do you feel about you today yourself out of 10? And it's, again, it's one of uh, the coaches in Australia, uh, a lady named Ray Bonnie, and she does a lot with men in suicide prevention, is it's okay not to be okay. Yes. It's more important to acknowledge where you're at and then take some positive action. Paul, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Really, I could I could have chatted with you for hours. I really can because <laughs> I just love this stuff. I mean, I love psychology. I care about people like you care about people. And we ultimately just want to see the best. And that's part of what Saving Brothers is really all about, which is helping men become the best version of themselves. So on behalf of the team here at Saving Brothers, Paul, brother, absolutely great pleasure in having you with us today. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, thank you, brother. I'm all the way from Nebraska, Midwest. I'm, I'm loving it. I'm, I've got to get there at some point. I've been to different parts of the USA, but I can't say I've been to Nebraska. But uh, I'll put it on the bucket list, brother. <laughs> yeah, well, you take care of yourself. You too. All good. Take care, mate. Great to have you with us and save you, brother. This has been a Saving Brothers podcast. Thanks for listening.